Well, welcome to Summit Church, all of our campuses. What a great day of baptism and just uh, celebrations that we have. Um, the baptism that we saw here at Briar Creek just a minute ago represents about a two-year process for some of our uh, members that have been, just been loving and investing and asking God to do some incredible things. And so uh, that's why you see some of the excitement around uh, seeing God answer prayers and not just um, in the life of the mother, but also now the daughter and the family um, follow suit this morning. The nine o'clock service, I had a chance to um, baptize somebody I told you about a couple weeks ago. His name is Donald. He is the, uh, one of our weight correctional brothers in Christ, who up until a few weeks ago was the Islamic imam, which is the pastor uh, essentially of uh, the community in weight correctional, Islamic community. But just over the last three months has um, really come to the conviction through the study of the Bible with some of our members that Jesus really is the Son of God. And so... Um, This morning I asked him, I said, or do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? Because this represents a line where you cross over, not just from death to life, but from, um, from uh, to, to, into truth and understanding that God is the only Savior. Um, he's been getting a lot of criticism back, as you can imagine, a lot of um, you know, what we would legitimately call persecution, just outright rejection. But God is using him, and he told me, he's already told me this morning about the things that he believes God has called him to. Um, so praise God that we see that these things don't just happen in Acts, they happen today. So one more time, put your hands together, let's celebrate. So I uh, genuinely like the movie Frozen. Uh, maybe that's not the right word. Maybe the word is appreciate. It's a great family film. Uh, but I swear, if I hear those songs one more time, I am going to lose my mind. I don't want to build a snowman. I don't want to ride my bike around the hall. Um, every single time I ask my kids, what would you like to watch? Every single time it's frozen. And uh, I just feel like, you know, I'm like, kids, let it go. You know, let it go. Um, I feel like I got to balance my son out because he's four years old and he dances and prances around the house right now singing these songs. I'm like, kid, let's watch Rambo together, or, you know, <laughs> or maybe he's, you know, too young for that, uh, Braveheart or Rocky or something. Maybe we'll start him out on those, on those things. But there are certain things that are awesome until you hear them repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Um, I feel like that about the movie Frozen, but I also feel a little like that about the subject that we're going to get into today. Um, but what we're going to discuss is really um, the theme of the whole Bible, and it's really the core, the essence of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. And so it's one of those things that I feel like we just really can't talk about enough, because if I'm teaching the Bible faithfully, and if I'm pastoring you faithfully, then this is a subject we've got to go into over and over and over again. And uh, it's basically this, um, that the, uh, the, the core sin of mankind is idolatry. God created us to love him, to serve him, to know him, to worship him. And what sin was, was we chose a bunch of other things to love and worship more than or often in the place of God. And so the whole story of the Bible is God challenging us in and rescuing us from our worship of false gods. One of my favorite Jewish commentators in the Old Testament, a guy named Moshe Halbertal, um, says that, uh, that really the whole Bible, you explain the whole Old Testament in kind of one sentence, and that is God challenging false gods and showing they're not really gods at all. Um, when you are converted to Christ, essentially what you're converted to is the worship of God as God. 
And you know, a lot of people don't really get that. They think that what it means to become a Christian is that you kind of work out this get out of hell free deal with, with God. And then in response to that, you become more moral and you, you know, go to church and you tip God in the offering. And that's basically what it means to become a Christian. Um, well, the essence of what it means to become a Christian is that you return to God as your God which means he is your delight, he's your foundation, he is your trust. The illustration I've used over the years with you to kind of um, uh, to illustrate this is uh, when I was in uh, graduate school, one of my roommates had a dog, great dog, um, very loyal, faithful dog, uh, but it was really old. It's a black Labrador retriever uh, in dog years. It was like, you know, 110 or something. Um, it had gotten sick. It, uh, um, it, it had been in an accident. And so for the last, you know, several months of its life, it just sort of laid around our house very obedient, would do, you know, sort of groggily everything you told it to do. But I remember stepping over that dog one time, leaving the house and thinking that based on how most people understand what it means to become a Christian, that dog would have made a fine Christian. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he never cussed. We'd had him neutered, so that wasn't really a problem anymore. Um, but obviously that's not what it means to be a Christian. It's not just that you become a submissive dog to God. Um, yes, submission is a part of becoming a Christian, but God created you to love him and to worship him. And that's what it means to become a follower of Jesus is that you return to God as God. Well, if you get that concept, then you're gonna see how the passage we're gonna get into today is really applicable to you. Acts 19 is the story of the gospel going into Ephesus. You're gonna see it challenge the most cherished false gods in the city, and you're gonna see people get violent as a result. This story should mirror the story of God coming into your life. When God comes into your life, he challenges your most precious idols, and sometimes you react every bit as violently as the people did in Acts chapter 19. If that never really happened to you, if you're like, well, God's never really made me mad. God never really challenged these idols. I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, not to start off really negative, but that might mean that you've never actually let God challenge and get into what you really worship. Because there's always this struggle and there's always this kind of reaction. It just always happens. Sometimes people read stories like the one we're going to get into in Acts 19, and they see the temples and the idols, and they're like, oh, these are primitive people. We're not like that today. We're modern people. We don't worship, you know, kind of silly stuff like they did back then. The gods they worshiped, I showed you this last week, the gods they worshiped were always a means to an end, right? And the end that they were after was power, sex, money, family stability, all the things that we think make for a good life today, they thought made for a good life then. That was what they really worshiped. You and I worship the exact same things that they do. The only difference is that their worship was overt and conscious. Our worship is covert and subconscious, but it's every bit as, as real. Each heart, listen to this, each heart, every heart in here has its own Parthenon. Parthenon's that place where they kept all the statues of the gods. Every heart has its own Parthenon. And to become a Christian means you tear down the Parthenon and you put Jesus in its place. And when its idols, when your idols, your Parthenon is challenged, we react just as violently as the people in Acts 19. So that's why the story that we're going to get into is really applicable to you. Plus, it's just wildly entertaining, which is why there's no way at all I can skip it. Um, so Acts 19. First, let me give you a, a few Wikipedia kind of facts about Ephesus. Ephesus was the richest city and the richest region in the Roman Empire. It was a port city so that all the trade coming into um, that part of Asia uh, had, had to go through Ephesus. It was rich. It was multi-ethnic. It was cosmopolitan. It was highly educated. Uh, largest library in the world was in Ephesus. Largest amphitheater. So it was into culture and 
sports. Um, uh, the largest temple in the world was in Ephesus. It was a temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of the city. Uh, to give you a little perspective, it was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. So we're talking a massive structure. It's one of the seven wonders, uh, man-made wonders of the ancient world. The statue of Artemis, which was the centerpiece of the temple, was carved out of a meteorite that they believed had fallen from the sky. Um, she was the protector of the city. She was the one they believed guaranteed their prosperity, and she was the one that they put their hope in. All right, so that's what Ephesus is. It is really the pinnacle of culture in that um, ancient world. Acts 19, Paul enters Ephesus with the gospel. By the way, Paul is not the first one into Ephesus with the gospel. The first guy into Ephesus with the gospel is a guy, as far as we can tell, named, named Apollos. I cannot make this point too often or too strongly. Just about every time the gospel goes into a new area in the book of Acts, it doesn't do so through an apostle. It does so through a regular guy or a regular woman who just takes the gospel in there. The reason I keep telling you that is I need some of you business people to understand that God has made you the tip of the spear when it comes to evangelism. The Holy Spirit intends to use you to take the gospel into parts of the world that, that church leaders like Paul or, or me are going to come years later and actually establish the church that you planted. And some of you never realized that that was God's intention in making you good at business. Is yes, he wanted you to, to do well and he wanted you to make money, but the primary thing he wanted was he wanted to use that as his way of getting into new areas. And so um, we see this all through the book of Acts. Well, when Paul finally shows up, verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, this was Paul's, you know, sanctified hanky ministry. Uh, verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists saw all this and they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits too, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Uh, evidently, there was this local ghostbuster squad um, in Ephesus named the Seven Sons of Sceva, uh, from the firm Skiva, 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 and Skiva. And they see this happening and they're like, well, this is pretty awesome. This guy sneezes on a hanky and cast out demons. Uh, so they go up to uh, these you know, groups of demons, people that have demons, and they're like, we command you to come out in the name of Jesus, whom that guy Paul's always talking about. Verse 15, one of the demons responds to them, uh, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? I mean, talk about the ultimate diss. A demon says to you, bro, I don't even know who you are. My question when I read this is how have they heard about Paul? How do they, do they communicate? Do they have staff meetings? You know, they say stuff to each other. Do they fly past each other in the atmosphere? Like, hey, you got to watch out for this cat, Paul. He's pretty dangerous. They have a newsletter, the Hellish Times, or, uh, you know, I figure they probably just read the New York Times as how they communicate. Verse 16, when they said this, when they said this, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I'm not really sure why he had to say and wounded, because if you're in a fight where you get the clothes beat off of you, I'm going to assume that you're wounded. And not just physically, by the way, if you're in a fight and you walk away without your pants, then you've been wounded emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, there's no other way you could be wounded. 
Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Um, by the way, that's a description of what an awakening in a city looks like, is when there's great fear of, of who God is, but then also Jesus becomes more glorious, and his name is high and lifted up, and people are drawn to him. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their occult practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. Um, in Ephesus, it was big business to collect spiritual incantations into books and then sell them, you know, like Secrets of the Dark Arts or whatever. And so uh, they brought all their you know, Harry Potter books and stuff, and they burned them, just kidding, in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found out that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which was, they say, somewhere near $7 million. So this was a big deal. Anytime there is a spiritual awakening among a group of people, one of the second things that happens after there's fear and the name of Jesus is extolled is believers get convicted of secret sin, and they bring it forward, and they begin to confess it. Um, I realize that probably you don't have a lot of books full of dark you know, magic that you use to cast out demons by the occult, but I know that, um, that when God is moving in your community, that uh, what stops it is when you have secret sin. And I would say that probably in our community, there are some places that God is not working. There's some things he's not doing. And it's because, it's because you have secret sin that is impeding the work of his Holy Spirit. But when they got rid of those things, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, all of this gets the attention of a businessman in Ephesus named Demetrius. Demetrius owned this chain of shops where they made these little silver statues of the goddess Artemis, and he would sell them. Well, uh, he starts getting worried because everybody's becoming Christians, and so they're not buying his little statues anymore. So he gets together all the businessmen from his city, and he says, verse 25, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You know, I mean, this was big business. They, uh, you know, tourism, in addition to making the statues, tourism was a big deal. People coming to worship at the temple and, and uh, then you had all the hotels and the restaurants and the, um, you know, people who sold the little, you know, Artemis kits, you know, little bumper stickers that said Artemis is my co-pilot and, uh, you know, pictures of Artemis eating the Darwin fish with the legs on it and stuff. And he's like, hey, if this goes down, then we're all going to lose our jobs. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not really gods at all. <laughs> I put that in quotes because scholars say the way that it's written, it had evidently become a slogan. So this is like Paul's one-line campaign speech. Gods made with hands are not really gods at all, which makes me wonder why that is not self-evident, right? I mean, a god that you concoct with your mind or shape with your hands is not really a god who could have created you and not really a god that you should be worshiping. But before we get all snooty toward them, I think the exact same thing when I talk to somebody and they begin to object to what the Bible says about God. And they're like, well, my God would never do that. My God would never do that. And I'm like, a God that you create with your mind is not a God that's worthy of worship. The real God ought to be able to challenge you and offend you and make you mad. And if the real God is not doing that, then chances are you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping a, a figment of your projected imagination. Uh, your God is really just a glorified version of yourself, right? And, and so if your God never makes you mad and explodes your categories and turns things upside down and offends you and makes you want to leave, then chances are you've never met the real God, all right? Demetrius goes on, verse 27, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. 
So Demetrius whips everybody up into this frenzy, and they flash mob into the amphitheater, which sat 25,000 people, one of the largest in the ancient world. Um, still stands today, most of it. Uh, if you go on a tour of Ephesus, one of the first places you go. So he whips them all up. They all get in there, 25,000 people. Um, for two hours, it says that they called out in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. Some of your translations say Diana, which was, I guess was her nickname or, you know, whatever, what her friends called her. But um, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Just think about this. This is a crowd about the size of the one at the Dean Dome um, at the UNC Duke game with the intensity like it's coming up to the last couple minutes of the game and it's really close for two hours. They're called great is Artemis of the Ephesians. One side calling out Arda and the other side calling out Miss, you know, back and forth to each other. For two hours, for two hours, for two hours. Verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not even know why they come together. <laughs> why are we here? I don't know, but greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul decides that he wants to go in there uh, because, hey, 25,000 people. You know, Paul's never going to turn down a crowd. Uh, his friends wisely um, tell him, that's a bad idea, Paul. There's no sense you going in there just to die. And so wisely, they keep him from doing that. Uh, finally, the crowd disperses and Paul and his friends live another day. Okay. So I want to show you five things that you need to understand about idols in your life that you can learn from this passage. Five things about idols in your life as the gospel comes into your life that you can learn from this passage and then what I want to do is show you how the gospel that Paul preached would confront these idols. That's what we'll do right toward the end. All right, five insights from idols or into idols from Acts 19. I'll give this as an A through E. A, idols are anything that promises to us a life of security and joy apart from God. Idols are anything that promise to us a life of security and joy apart from God. You want a definition of idolatry? That's it. That's what Artemis did. She was the protector and prosperer of the city. With her, they believed, they were guaranteed to have security and joy. Without her, they could not have those things. So here is my question for you. What is that in your life? About what do you think, if this is present in my life, I'll have security and I'll have joy? Is it influence? If I have a lot of influence, that'll make me secure, give me joy. Is it success? Is it physical beauty? Is it weighing 20 pounds less than you weigh right now? Is it money? Is it romance? Is it fame and respect? Is it having children? Is it having your children live close by? Is it something a little more immediate like a beach house, a retirement plan? What is it that you say, if that's present, I can have security and joy, but without that, there is no security and joy? Idols, as I often explain to you all, is our, idols are not usually bad things. They're just good things that we've turned into God things, things that we believe will give us security and joy, and without which we can't have security and joy even if we have God. So for example, if romance is that thing for you, then that means that you believe the good life begins when you find that person, and that without that person, the good life will never really truly begin. So for example, in the romantic comedy, When Harry Met Sally, which I know is a little um, older of a movie, but I imagine many of you have seen it. In the climactic scene, and when Harry met Sally, Harry comes to Sally and says, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Now you're like, well, I haven't seen that movie. Insert any, any romantic comedy ever written ever into that spot, because they're all just basically, they have one plot, right? 
They meet each other. They don't like each other. They exchange witty banter for about two hours. Then they get together, right? Right? Can I get an amen from the guys? That's every single one of them right there. I'm like, I can tell you where this is going. Um, But the message is clear. Your, Your good life begins when you meet that person. And if you want the good life, you better find that person. If you get this, you'll be happy. And the flip side is also true. Miss this and your life is over. So if you are single right now, let me ask you a question. If you're single and you really want to be married, the question you need to ask is, could you be happy and content single? I did not ask, is that your preference? I asked if you could be happy and content being single. If you could not be happy and content being single, then you probably have turned romance into an idol. Because see, if you lose a good thing from your life, then you're sad. But if you lose a God thing from your life, an ultimate thing, then you're devastated. And there's a difference between sad and devastated. You might have a preference for a lot of things. You might want certain things to happen to you. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're like, there's no way I can be secure. There's no way I can really have a good life. There's no way that I can have joy apart from that thing. Then it has become an idol. Could you be okay if you never really progress in your career? Could you be okay if your big ship never really comes in, that there's really no substantial change in your career from right now? You never really get the promotion, the big ship never comes in. Could you be okay, happy and content if you never have kids? If your health never improves? If your work never gets noticed, your talents never get recognized? If you never accomplish anything that's on your bucket list? Could you be happy and joyful if how you've suffered is never really made right in this life? What is it that you think will give you security and joy apart from God or that there's no way to have security and joy without that thing, even if you do have God? Because whatever it is, is your Artemis and is probably the primary God in your Parthenon. Letter B, idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. Idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. As you can see from this story, when you threaten people's idols, they get violent. Why? Because their idols are their lifeblood. Their idols are the protectors of their city. What is that in your life? What is the protector of your city? What is that thing that the idea of losing it or never gaining it makes you despair? Again, if you lose a good thing, then you're sad or mad. But if you lose a God thing, then you are devastated. I've told you before that many of my deepest emotions are connected to my idols. Like many guys and girls, you know, I, I, as, a, as kind of an overachiever, I, one of the gods that I worship, or at least worship throughout my life, is the God of success. So when I look at the deepest emotions in my heart, the deepest angst, it's always tied around the loss of that God. So I'm talking to Veronica, my wife, about, oh, what ha- this happens in the church, and then this happens, and this happens, and the church falls apart, and she's like, why are you worried about that? I mean, it's not that she doesn't love the church. She just doesn't depend on it like I do. Now, I've told you that my worry and my fears are always about, you know, that somehow, you know, I've told you I have this recurring fear. It's crazy. It's stupid. Um, But, you know, I have this fear that I'm going to show up one weekend and all of you have decided just to go to somewhere else at church all all at once because you're like, you know, we're tired of him telling the exact same stories every single week. And uh, we're just going to go somewhere else. And it's just me in this big old room and my wife, and she's got an iPod listening to Matt Chandler because she thinks he's funnier than I am. And so, you know, it's just like, that's what's going to happen. All right. Why is it, why are these, why is this, it's triggered by the fact that I worship a, a, a false God. Here's another way of coming at this same question. 
Who were you unable? Who were you unable to forgive? Who are you unable to forgive? Because if you're unable to forgive somebody, it's because it's tied to a deep resentment that you have toward that person. And that deep resentment is probably triggered by the fact that they attack something, that they damage something that you feel like you can't be happy and joyful without. In other words, they got to your idol. I'm not saying what they did was right. I'm not saying what they did was not that bad. I'm just saying the reason you can't forgive, the reason you can't get over the bitterness is because it goes down to the deepest part of who you are and threatens your very being. I heard a pastor telling a story about two women in his church, one of whom was a brand new Christian, the other of whom was a very mature Christian. She'd been a Christian for over 25 years. Both of them were in marriages that were headed toward divorce. Um, Both of them had one son, and the divorce was negatively affecting that son. So they're nearly identical situations. He said the woman who had just become a Christian was very immature in her faith, was able to forgive her husband, go to counseling and reconcile and save their marriage. The woman who had been a Christian for a long time was not able to forgive her husband and ended up in divorce. The pastor said, as I began to talk with this woman who was a mature Christian, he said the reason became very obvious. When this mature Christian's marriage, when it had begun to, when it had begun to grow cold and distant, she had become emotionally dependent on her son. Not in a weird way, but she kind of emotionally married her son. Her son had become an idol. So when her relationship with her husband got to the point that it was negatively affecting her son, she was not able to forgive her husband because what he was doing was affecting the thing that she depended on for life and substance. So the woman who was a brand new Christian going through the same situation. She had a great relationship with her son, but she was not dependent on him. So she was able to forgive her husband and reconcile the marriage. And the woman who knew all the answers as the mature Christian, she was the one who couldn't do it because that resentment was tied to something that was at the core of her being. Where are the areas that you are unable to forgive? Where's the resentment that you cannot shake? Again, I'm not saying that what they did was okay. And I'm not saying it wasn't bad. I'm just saying That resentment is always a sign that they've gotten a hold of something that you believe is more essential for security and joy than God himself is. You know, ironically, when you idolize something good, it ultimately keeps you from being able to enjoy it at all because you start obsessing over the things and you can't enjoy them because your life depends on them. They become like life preservers that you cling to. You don't enjoy a life preserver, right? It saves you. So if romance, good romance is your life preserver, then you become a terrible codependent spouse in marriage because you need that person in order to validate you, in order to give you joy and security. If you're single and marriage is going to be your lifesaver and give you like, oh, when I get married, everything's going to be awesome. Don't get married. (laughs) Listen, listen, here's a phrase we use around here. You're not ready to date until you're ready not to date. When you're ready not to date, then you're not looking for security and joy in a human being that will never be able to give it to you. The worst thing for you to do is get married because you are going to destroy that relationship by putting them in the place of God. They were not intended to be God. They were a good thing, not a God thing. A marriage that is enjoyed is a marriage where you're not looking at that person to give you security and joy because those things come from God. So I tell you, lonely, insecure, single people become lonely, insecure, married people. And then they end up in our counseling offices because they've turned somebody else into a God that has never been able to 
to satisfy or deliver them. If you depend on family as your life preserver, then you become really controlling of your family. And so you go from sweet, loving mother to dominating, obsessive, controlling mom. You're like, am I like that? Ask your kids, (laughs) all right? (laughs) New York Times writer Benjamin Nugent, listen to this. When good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I was never able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I'd written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to be sane. Because I depended on the quality of my writing for life and worth, I obsessed about it. And so I lost the ability to cheerfully appreciate how much I liked what I had written. See, a good thing, a gift had become a God thing and so it turned into a bad thing. Or do you ever notice that people who seem to have a lot of something seem to be the ones who are not able to enjoy that thing? The people who are most dissatisfied with money are the people who have lots of it. Or why is it that girls who develop eating disorders are usually really beautiful girls? Why? It's because a good thing has become a God thing, a life-defining thing, and thereby robbed them of the joy that should have been theirs in the good thing, because what God intended to be a tool became a lifesaver. And you worship something that could not sustain the weight of your soul. You begin to look at beauty, or you begin to look at money as, as basically your security and joy. And no amount of money and no amount of beauty can ever sustain the weight of your soul. Only God can do that. Idols engage the deepest emotions in our heart. And if I'm doing my job right as your pastor, I'm going to be challenging your idols like Paul did, and it's going to make you mad. If I'm not making you mad when I'm preaching, then I'm either I'm not preaching or you're not listening. Why is it that, that the sermons I get the most criticism on, you know what subject they're on? It's not hard to figure out. What sermons do I get the most criticism on? money. Is it because on that subject, I just switch to a different guy and start preaching really dumb sermons? Is, is that the reason? You think that's the reason? Is it because on that subject and that subject alone, I'm just an inferior preacher? No. I'm an inferior preacher on multiple subjects. The reason that subject I get all the hate mail from, it has nothing to do with the quality of the sermon. It said it starts messing with somebody's idol. And they don't like it. They don't like it. They're like, don't you touch Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Don't you preach on that because that's my lifeblood and I got to protect that, which leads me to number three. Idols need to be protected. Idols need to be protected. Demetrius says we need to protect Artemis. We cannot let her be deposed of her meteorite magnificence. Now, here's the irony. Wasn't she supposed to be the protector of them? She's supposed to be the protector of them. Now, they're the protector of her. What do you feel obsessive to protect in your life? If you feel like life without a good marriage is empty and hardly worth living, then you obsess about your marriage. So if you're single, you're like, oh, well, what if I miss my chance? I mean, I'll just tell you, when I was single, I went through seasons of my life where I obsessed about it. And I asked these ridiculous questions like, well, what if, you know, what if she misses the will of God? Like, what if the girl that I'm supposed to marry goes, you know, and makes a bad decision and I got to suffer for the rest of my life single because she made a wrong decision? Hey, when, when I was in college, I went to like every social event ever put on, I think, because I was like, what if she's there? <laughs> what if she's there? And, and like God wanted me to meet her there, but I don't go and therefore I don't meet her. I was obsessing about these things because I, I didn't see how life could be good if I was not in that kind of relationship. Some girls who obsess about this get paranoid about how they look, how old they are. Maybe in high school, 
you know, she's a serial dater, what we call. We're just, you know, a string of relationships because she just can't handle being alone. And as she gets older, she's terrified of being single. If you're dependent on good romance when you're married, then you obsess that your marriage is no good. And you, you start fantasizing about your friend's marriages or maybe a new marriage. And so you are fantasizing about adultery, not necessarily the sexual part of it, just the idea of being with somebody new. Or you fantasize about your spouse's premature death because then you could do it and not feel guilty, right? If the kids are that thing for you, then you become clingy with your kids, right? If kids are your protector, if they're what makes life good for you, then you got to protect them at all costs. Now, I get we as parents are the protectors of our kids. I mean, that's my job. But some parents, and you know this, I mean, they're like, because they're always controlling their kids' environment, you know, always make, make sure they eat everything that they're supposed to eat. It's because... It's because they call this protecting their kid. What they're actually doing is protecting themselves. They don't realize the ultimate point of parenting is not to hang on, it's to let go. And so they're not letting their kid go and become what God wants them to become because they need their kids to be a certain thing and become a certain thing so that they can have a certain kind of life. They're not the protectors of their kids. Their kids are the protectors of the good life for them. And that's why they're obsessive about their kids. If money is the protector of your city, then you're always worried about whether you're going to have enough of it in the future. How can I protect my money? Of course, of course you cannot give. How could you give away that thing which is the protector of your life and your city? You can't give it away. You can't, sac- you can't obey God in it because it is the protector of the good life for you. If reputation is that protector of your city, if that's what means a good life, then you're the kind of person that always protects your reputation, right? Which is why you can't handle criticism. You want to know why some of you can't handle criticism? <laughs> it's because you can't handle anybody, even somebody you don't know, thinking bad things about you because that reputation is a protector of your city. That's why you always make sure that you get the credit for whatever it is that you did. You can't handle the credit going to somebody else because... Because you need the credit, you need the affirmation. That's what makes for a good life is other people recognizing your worth and your awesomeness and you can't handle criticism or missing the credit. Letter D, idols demand sacrifices to keep them happy. Idols demand sacrifices to keep them happy. This whole system in Ephesus was built on appeasing Artemis, making sure that she was not displeased. See, idols are always like that. Idols always say, hey, if you want more of me, if you want me, you got to sacrifice for me. So, when a guy cheats at his business, you realize that when a guy cheats at his business, it's not that he's just a compulsive liar. It's that there's something right on the other side of that cheating that he is willing to compromise his integrity to get. And he's like, it just be this once, it'll just be a little thing. I just compromise a little integrity because this promotion or this acquisition, this is what will make the good life. I referred to that show Breaking Bad a few weeks ago. Many of you have seen it. This is kind of really the whole point of it, is you got a guy who makes disastrously bad decisions in his life. And the whole time he keeps telling his wife, I'm doing this for our family. I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing it for you. And finally, he gets to the end of the series and he's like, I did it for me. I did it because I wanted the power and I wanted the security and I wanted the joy that I thought the money from making these decisions would bring. And so I compromised my integrity to grab a hold of that which I thought would make our lives good. You know, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You wonder what that means? 
It means it's the love of money that ends up triggering all the compromises. It is the love of money that is the root sin that's behind the other sins. Why do you lie? Why do you cheat? Why do you disobey God? It all goes back to the fact that money equals the good life for you. Um, me, I'm generally a truthful person. I tell the truth in most situations. The one time I don't tell the truth, you want to know what it is? It's when I got to lie to protect my success. When I got to protect the illusion of success. So that's why I'll exaggerate my accomplishments and minimize my failures over here. Why? Because I want people to think of me as more successful than I actually am. It goes back to the roots. When girls date a non, and Christian girls date a non-Christian, they're not doing it because they really want to tie themselves to the rest of their lives to a guy who's not a spiritual leader. They're not doing it because they think it's a good idea for to have a non-Christian father raise their children. I ask them sometimes. I'm like, now, are you thinking about this? You're going to get married to this guy. If you keep dating him, he's not a Christian. You know that. You're going to get married, and you'll probably have kids. And the most significant influence on your kids is going to be a guy who doesn't know God at all. Do you really want that? And they're always like, uh, you know. <laughs> and they don't really want it. They don't really want it. They just can't stand the idea of being alone. And if they got to circumvent God's will to get that man, so be it. Because a life of security and joy is found in the attention of a man. Same thing is true with a lot of girls right now in our church living in immorality with their boyfriends. You're not doing it because you have a sex drive that's out of control. You're doing that because you need the God of affection and love, and this is just a means to that end. The irony is he's using you, you're using him. Because both of you have a God and you're willing to compromise and sacrifice obedience to God to get that thing. Those Christians in our church who will not obey God in their finances, you realize that it's not just that they're really stingy people. No, it's just that right now they got something they want to obtain, an idol of comfort. It might take the form of a beach house. It might take the form of a certain amount of money in their bank. It might take the form of a new car. And in order to get that thing, they're going to have to compromise a little bit the commands of God. And so they're willing to do that for a season, they think, so that they can get this God that they really want, which is the God of comfort. we got a lot of people in our church who worship the God of an ideal family, which is why they refuse to entertain the idea that God might send one of their children overseas when they grow up. Why? Because that's not the vision of the ideal family they've always had. And that's what I'm going to have. And so, no, you can't obey God. I'm going to stand in your way. For some of you, it's why you will not entertain the idea of adoption or fostering because it messes up the ideal you've always had for your family. And so you sacrifice obedience to God and the altar of an ideal family because that's the security and joy that you've always wanted in life. Many people worship the God of personal comfort. So anything that makes them uncomfortable, they're just not going to do, whether that's going on a mission trip or even serving here on the weekend. I got to be comfortable, and that's my top priority. So, no, I can't do that, even though I know that's what I probably should do. And when a guy really has this idle bad, if his wife starts getting on his nerves, well, I, I got to be comfortable, so she annoys me, I'll get rid of her. And I'm willing to sacrifice my family, my integrity, the vows that I made before God, because ultimately the love of comfort was the root of that evil in his life. It is the love of idols that is the root of all evils. You sacrifice for the idol. And here's the, the, this tragic part. The idol's never satisfied. He's just like, more, more. William James, who is not a Christian, he's a postmodern philosopher. William James said that success for him, I can't quote him directly, was a 
B-I-T-C-H goddess, a bee goddess. He said, the reason he said that, he said, because no matter what I give to her, she always demands more. I gave her, he said, my family. And she said, I want your health. I gave her my health, he said, and then she said, I want your integrity. He said, there is nothing she has not taken from me. And she still shows up saying, if you really want me, give me more. Ancient gods required child sacrifice. And we look at that and we say, how could they? How could you do something so barbaric that they would lay their children on the altar? And then you think for two seconds about it. Many of us sacrifice our children to the gods of success. We're not there for our kids. You're not there for kids because you have to be successful. You just couldn't imagine life being good without being successful. So if your kids get in the way of that, well, you'll pursue your idol and let your kids pay the price. Letter E, idols are not just psychological forces. They are demonic ones as well. Can't we see that fully on display in Ephesus? Whenever idolatry is rampant, you'll find demons very active. And probably the tragedy is that we fail to recognize that in our culture because Satan has figured out he can do more damage to us by keeping himself cloaked than he can in outright terror and demon possession the way he did in these days. Satan preaches, however, listen, the same lie in every idol, in every age that he preached in the first idol that he presented to our first parents in the forbidden fruit. If you eat this, you will be like God and you will not surely die. If you take this, you'll have security and joy. You'll never really die. You don't have to worry about that. About what is he saying that to you? About what is he right now holding this out to you and saying, you want security and joy? This is where it is. Why don't you prioritize this more than God? Why don't you seek this more than God? Why don't you condition your obedience to God on this? Because if you have this, you'll be like God. You'll never really die. It is the same demonic lie. It is every bit as powerful. It is every bit as demonic, even if he's not making the eyes roll in the back of your head and making you float six feet above your bed. That's his least impressive work. His most impressive work, his main work is the lie of Genesis 3. So here we go. How does the gospel confront that idolatry? How does the gospel confront that? Paul preached a message with basically one point. You want to know what it is? Uh, admittedly, it's not spelled out in Acts 19, but you get it from the letter to the Ephesians, which is the letter he wrote to the people in Acts 19. <laughs> the letter has one point. God is better than your idols. God's better than your idols. He's better because, A, the true God alone gives life. The true God is a God, Paul says, who's not made with hands. The true God is the creator of all, which means that his love is more faithful and more tender than romance. The arms that you were aching for in romance were really his arms. His promises are more secure and more reliable than money because God is a market that never crashes, never dips below 10,000, never changes in value. It's constant and never changes. Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. His presence is more life-sustaining than creature comfort, Psalm 1611, because in his presence is the fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. His future is more fulfilling than a fertile family. His attention and his affections are better than the praise of people. Jonah 2, 8, those who forsake idols those who, excuse me, those who pursue idols forsake the mercy that could be theirs. Jeremiah 2.13, I love this verse. My people, says God, have committed two evils. 
Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. A fountain was a spring. It has had all water that was always rushing. It never ran dry. He says, he says sin number one was a sin against God. They thought there was something besides God that was more trustworthy, more joy-giving, more valuable, and they blasphemed God's name by turning their back on the Almighty God and believing something else in the place of God. That's sin number one. Sin number two was not a sin against God. It was a sin against themselves. They hewed for themselves a cistern that couldn't really hold water. They dug this hole in the ground, which was used to gather rain. And he says they, the holes they dug couldn't, couldn't hold water. So one of those holes was called marriage. And one of those cisterns was called success. And they kept putting water in it, and it would never hold the water. But they kept going back to it, and it always ran dry. Two sins, one against God, one against you. Those who pursue idols forsake the mercy that could be theirs because there is a living water fountain that overflows. His presence is yours. You take it. And Paul says, it's better. What are you doing? You're seeking something that can never sustain the weight of your soul. Let it be the true God didn't need you to protect him. Oh, the true God protects you. That's why King David would say, I love you. I will love you, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my refuge, my fortress. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I do not need to obsess about romance. I don't need to obsess about money. I don't need to obsess about success because I trust you. I rest in you. Those who wait upon the Lord will have their strength renewed. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. If I seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added to me. Isaiah 26, 3, those who have their mind fixed upon you, you will keep in perfect peace. I know that if God is my God, then all this other stuff he's going to provide when he wants. God plus nothing equals everything. And every all that stuff without God equals nothing. So I'll take God. You can have the rest. And I'll let God put it into my life when he needs it. I don't need to protect him. He protects me. Which leads me to letter C. The true God offered his own sacrifice. Right? Every other God says, hey, if you don't sacrifice enough for me, I'll destroy you. If you fail me, I'll make you miserable. The true God said, you did fail me, and I saved you. The true God said, you did something that earned my curse. And instead of cursing you, I curse myself. That's the God that you ought to give your life to. You see, in the book of Hosea, God describes his people, us, Israel, and then us, like people who have been unfaithful in their marriage. They were supposed to love and be consumed with one spouse, but they gave themselves away to numerous other spouses. That's a picture of our idolatry. And God said to Israel through Hosea, what you have done means I should divorce you, but I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to do that by taking upon myself the shame of your prostitution. And it didn't make sense to them what he was talking about until five, four, five hundred years later, Jesus Christ showed up. God in the flesh was stripped naked, which was the price of a prostitute. That's what they did to shame them. He was stripped naked, hung up on a cross, and there he took their corruption, there he took their shame, there he took their curse, and there he died in their place so that they could be reconciled to him. I have a pastor friend who in his church, he said there was a young couple they got married. They both came from kind of rough backgrounds. Five years into their marriage, he said their marriage had been pretty rocky. He said the wife comes to the husband and said, for five years, I've cheated on you. I cheated on you when we were engaged. I cheated on you our first year of marriage. I cheated on you for the next five years. I don't want to be like that. You deserve more than that. I'm sorry about that, but it's what it was. And she said, I know you'll leave. 
pastor friend said that's exactly what he did. He turned around, he walked out of the house. She thought he was gone forever. He said about three hours later, he showed up and he had a box. In the box, he opened it. He pulled out a white wedding dress. And he said, I want you to put this on. He said, because the first time you wore this dress, it was a lie. It was something that I believed that you were, but you were not. He said, this time I want you to put it on as a statement of what God intends for you and me to be. Because see, both of us are really like you. Both of us in the eyes of God have given ourselves away to numerous lovers and God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, the spotless righteousness of Christ. And clothing me in the spotless righteousness of Christ changed the entire trajectory of my life. If God can do that in my life, he can do that in our marriage. So will you put this garment on, symbolic, that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, the true God was cursed in your place. And the true God says, if you want all the things that you're seeking, the first sin you committed was against me. The second sin you committed was against you. So I took your curse and I took your corruption and you may come, you may return. Have you returned to God as your God? I know you prayed a prayer and I know you did the Christian thing, but have you returned to God as your God? Because that's what conversion is all about. That's where it just, it's a fountain that flows from there. Have you returned to God as your God? You do it once and you keep doing it for the rest of your life because it's a fountain of goodness. Why don't you bow your heads with me if you would. I would think by now the applications for your life are obvious. I've been making them the whole time. What is the Holy Spirit in your heart saying this? This is in your Parthenon. This is the idol. Could I leave you for just a couple moments to soak in the Holy Spirit? What do you look to for security and joy apart from God or more than God? Would you let him tear down that idol? Would you say, Jesus, your promises are better. Your love is better. Would you right now return to God as your God? If you're not a Christian, the gospel is that Jesus took your curse, suffered in your place. will reunite himself, God, to you. If you repent, which means to acknowledge that he's the Lord, and believe, which means to receive his sacrifice in your place. You spend these next couple of moments just in the Holy Spirit, and then our worship leaders will come at all of our campuses, and they'll lead us. They'll lead us.